There have been so many times when I assume that I can explain a past event and then I go in and actually talk to people and realize, oh, I wasn't entirely wrong, but my narrative that I had before going into the interview was not entirely complete either. So I think that there are lots of times when I would do my interviews with refugee for refugees, for example, that I realized, oh, they were just approaching the world with different questions and different assumptions that were not even on my horizon. And what I really needed to do was spend some time not even asking questions, just beginning with something very open-ended and allowing them to structure their own narrative. You're listening to Upside Down, a podcast on spirituality and culture. No topic is off limits, so join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. Welcome to this episode of Upside Down Podcast. I am Kayla Craig, and with me today is co-host Lindsay Wallace, and we have two really special guests joining us today as we dive into what I think is going to lead to a really interesting conversation. We are going to be talking about ethical storytelling. And as we have kind of prepared for this episode, uh, two really stellar human beings came to mind as people to um, to really add depth and wisdom and life experience to this conversation. So I am really excited to bring Melissa Borja and Jake Mao to the table. So guys, say hi and welcome to the show. Hello. So, Melissa, you have already told me that you have a way with words. <laughs> and I, so I would love, I would love for you, in your in your own words, to kind of give our listeners a background into who you are and why you're here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really grateful for this chance to be involved in this conversation. Um, so, I am an assistant professor in the American Culture Department at the University of Michigan, and I am currently writing a book about the history of religious communities uh, involved in refugee resettlement. Um, and I'm really interested in understanding how government works with religious institutions to help refugees and ensure how government policies impact the religious choices of refugees. And I'm here because I use oral history as the, one of the primary ways I understand the lives of refugees, um, and in particular, the religious lives of people involved in refugee resettlement. And Melissa, we found you. You are a member of the Upside Down Tribe on Facebook and it was like months ago, somebody was asking a question in the group about ethical storytelling. And you were like, kind of raised your hand, like, I have I have a little background into this. And Lindsay and I were like, we have got to, <laughs> we have got to reach out to her. And um, can you just give, I'm sure that, you know, you're very modest, but can you give our listeners a background of what your education is? Because Lindsay and I almost fainted when we were looking uh, around and looking your <laughs> your bio up online. Yeah, well, you know, I have been um, working on this project on refugees and religion using oral history since I was an undergrad at Harvard. It began actually when I was 19 years old. And then I continued with this project through graduate school at the University of Chicago, got my PhD at Columbia, um, and then taught at CUNY for a few years here in New York City, actually live in New York City, um, before I started teaching at the University of Michigan. 
But I should say that I enter into this really interested in it as a scholar, but I have a lot of family connection to the issue of refugee resettlement um, and oral history. My parents were involved in resettlement projects in Michigan. Um, and also as an Asian American person, I really care deeply about um, the experiences of migrants. Uh, so it has a lot of personal connection for me. Awesome. Melissa, we are just thrilled that you're joining us. So thank you for being here. Thank you. And Jake, Lindsay and I had the chance to get to know you at the Upside Down Gathering in Chicago. So that's kind of fun that now we're connecting in the digital world. Normally, it's the other way around. We, we meet people via the internet, but we don't ever get to meet in person. And so this is kind of a fun, a fun upside down flip on that. Yeah. And you told us before we get started, you're not a man of many words. <laughs> well, I might be better, uh, a stronger writer than conversationalist, but we'll we'll try it out. <laughs> well, I think you're slightly underselling yourself because you are a podcaster as well. Can you tell us a little bit um, about your background and why you're joining us today? So my connection to Refugee resettlement started uh, in 2006 or so. I was in college at the time and started volunteering at a refugee resettlement agency in Chicago. And that kind of led to other opportunities. And basically, I have been there um, ever since. So it's given me the opportunity to interact in a really hands-on capacity um, with a lot of people uh, with a lot of very different backgrounds, all really different than my own. Um, for me, I'm about about as American as you can get um, in terms of my ancestry and stuff. Um, so, yeah, interacting with folks from from a different background, people who had experienced displacement, has been I'm a big has been really impactful for me. Has given me kind of insight to see the country uh, in a different way than I would otherwise. So, in uh, 2017, I had the opportunity to travel abroad to Turkey and spent that time doing interviews with people who were kind of in another dimension of displacement. All my work and interactions up to that point had been interacting with people kind of from that very thin little slice um, of displaced people who actually access formal resettlement to a third country. But then going over there, I had the opportunity to meet folks that were um, not in that situation, that were in their second country and were kind of all in, in lots of different positions. So um, did interviews with a number of refugees and asylum seekers and used those conversations to kind of craft a, a podcast of six episodes. Um, and the, the hope in it was to kind of capture um, them telling their own stories in their own voices and mm -hmm. kind of bring out some of that personhood um, into the conversation happening in America and just try to be one other effort. I wasn't the only person doing that kind of stuff. Of course, lots of people have done those initiatives, but just trying to add something to the conversation here um, and... I think as, yeah, as an advocate, sometimes um, we do speak kind of in the place of people whose voices don't have access to channels of power like our voices do, but also sometimes being an advocate means 
finding creative ways to translate and magnify their voices. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the idea behind behind that project. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited to share about it. Excited to be uh, in the conversation with you guys and Melissa, and just kind of learning about um, her angle. Yeah. Of, participation in the issue as well so well and I have to say Jake you have but you are like the most well-researched uh guest host that we have brought onto the show you sent us so many questions and research that yeah. you had done so we don't have awards but we'd give you one because that was so impressive <laughs> how prepared you are coming to the table I mean Lindsay and I are usually having difficult like technical difficulties up until <laughs> the final hour as you guys have seen <laughs> and you are just you're um, a professional so we're excited to have you great and Lindsay I just was thinking for our listeners they may be a little bit more acquainted with your story but you also have an interesting perspective on um, the people that you have kind of been neighboring with and living with and um, as you have are kind of transitioning out of that I just wonder if you want to tell our listeners anything about um kind of what perspective you're bringing into the conversation as um somebody who hopes to be an ethical storyteller Mm, sure yeah I've been thinking about this topic a lot um I mean recently like you said as we're transitioning out of our neighborhood but for the past three years we have I mean we still are um technically missionaries who live on support, right? And so there's a lot of um, expectation that comes with that in terms of storytelling back to those who are supporting you financially. Um, And I feel like we got some really good um, training, um, formal training, and then, you know, informal training in the beginning of of how to do that well. but even along the way, I've questioned some of um, some of those approaches and Jake used the word power earlier. And that comes to mind a lot for me as I'm thinking through things. And um, yeah, so I'm excited to, to talk about this with with um, Melissa and Jake because they have put so much thought into it and study. And I mean, Melissa was describing earlier a project that she's been working on since she was 19, you know, so um, they just have so much wisdom and years of experience. And I'm sort of like fumbling along on the ground, kind of figuring it out as we go and, you know, relying on people who've done it and gone before us, but still have a lot of questions and a lot of learning to do. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, Jake, as you were talking, um, it reminded me of a question that kind of is a little bit of a red herring, but I think it'll, I kind of just want to throw it out and see what happens. I've been thinking about impact, um, over intent. And sometimes we have good intentions about wanting to share someone's story, but there's a phrase that gets thrown around. Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts, uh, on it, all of you. And that's being a voice for the voiceless. Yes. Yeah, that's complicated. It is complicated. And I think, yeah, I was kind of alluding to it and some stuff I said earlier. Um, I think, at least for me and the angle at which I approach this stuff, um, you know, as a person kind of born into the majority culture of America, it's, uh, I mean, I don't like the, the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I've had to kind of, I don't know, distance myself from thinking that way, maybe, um, because it is, it's very easy to come in and um, have that mentality that you are being a voice um, for the voiceless, but really you just want people to listen to you, and you're saying that other people don't have a voice because you want to get something across. Um, or, and this is something that I ran into a lot as I was trying to do this podcast project and do these interviews. Um, the other temptation is to kind of use other people's voices to be like a mouthpiece for your own message. Mm. Um, and it's just real easy. I mean, even when you're well-intended and you want to, you know, when you feel like you're a bridge person, and what I mean by that is kind of, you know, my experiences with displaced people has given me insight into uh, a group of people and a group of experiences that other people from my own community don't have access to, right? So I'm kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a person in the middle, how do you, yeah, represent those voices and represent those experiences, um, but do so remembering that, yeah, that they're not voiceless people. Everybody has a voice. It's more about who's listening, right? Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I've been challenged a lot about that idea from a lot of other people who've thought about Mm -hmm. it, um, more than me (laughs) and that's good and necessary. The, a friend of mine one time who we were in a writing group together and she used the phrase, um, translate and magnify, you know, that was kind of her goal in some projects that she had undertaken, um, and she was really good at languages, so she could literally do that, you know, better than someone like me. But those two ideas are really helpful when I tend to think in the direction of um, speaking on other people's behalf. I can think of it in term, instead in terms of translating and magnifying those voices, which oftentimes is a lot harder and more complicated and takes time and resources. But I think for me, those ideas have, have been helpful to hang on to. I agree with what a lot of you, uh, a lot of what you said, Jake. Um, and I should clarify that I'm coming at the work of storytelling from the perspective of an oral historian. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth teasing out that people use stories for different purposes and they approach the work of storytelling and story sharing with different assumptions about how it should be used and what the best practices are. So I should just preface everything I say by um, making clear that my work is really shaped by what oral historians have accepted to be ideal uh, practices and principles. Um, And and those are different for other scholars, for, for journalists, and so on. But I think there's a lot of important overlap, which is really, um, you use the word magnifying, Jake. Um, I like the word amplifying. Like my my work, I don't in my work I, I don't seek to tell the stories for the people I am researching or studying or listening to, but simply trying to facilitate the dissemination of their story to a broader audience. Um, and so I think there's a lot of similarity. I think a lot of it also for me is prioritizing not my needs but the needs of the people I'm listening to. Um, And that's really important for oral historians, uh, making sure that we prioritize the needs 
and the objectives of the people who are telling the story, the narrator, and not me, the scholar, um, or me, the person who is um, authoring an article based on the story shared by the the people, um, in particular, the refugees I I work with. Mm. Um, And and finally, I think it's so important just not to do any harm, (laughs) making that a, a central goal. Um, one of the most important principles for oral history is not to reproduce any harmful stereotype that does damage to the community. And um, a lot of the communities I study are in vulnerable positions. There are um, racial, ethnic, religious minorities. Um, and so I think it's imperative that we're really sensitive to the possibilities for our work to do good, but also to do harm. Mm. Yeah. I love that. That is something that I think about when I share about my community is, am I, am I inadvertently um, reproducing harmful stereotypes? Am I furthering those stereotypes that people might already have? I think one of the things um, when we think about that phrase voice for the voiceless that comes to mind for me, and this is echoing some of what's been said already, but maybe more from like the missionary um, and missions standpoint is I always wonder, like I see people say that, right. That they're a voice for the voiceless. And I, I think I understand where they're coming from. Like they have that justice streak. They want to be the bridge person that Jake referenced, but like, why do you feel that way? Why do you feel like you need to be the voice for someone else? Like, do they not have agency over themselves? Do they not own their own story? Do they not own their narrative? Like, why do you feel that way? And I think if we sit with that question, we feel that way because those of us who would say that about someone else, like we have, we're in positions of power and we're in positions of platform maybe where we have access to an audience who's going to listen to us but they might not listen to this other person so we're going to tell their story for them but I, I love what Melissa said about prioritizing the needs of the people and I think that's really important again from like a mission standpoint the reason often that we tell the stories of other people is so that we can raise money to do this good work that we want to do but we raise it off of their trauma and Mm. their life story when really they own that that's theirs and so who do those funds actually belong to right that we're raising off of someone else's story it gets very messy and like Jake said it takes a lot longer maybe to translate or magnify or amplify but that is the ethical way I think um and I just I always wonder when people like when I see that phrasing, like, well, if why can't you pass the mic to that person? <laughs> like what's preventing <laughs> you from passing that power on? Um, and often I think it's it's tied to what we get from telling those stories. And and sometimes sometimes that's a stage and sometimes that's a check, you know, and um, I don't think that's OK. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I completely agree. And, and I feel like they're is already a power dynamic built into the language of storytelling in that maybe our best role sometimes is to be a story listener and a story facilitator Mm. and not even use the word of storyteller to describe ourselves at all. Um, That's a really good point. Yeah. Melissa, could you uh, 
I also kind of latched on to what you said, Melissa, about prioritizing the needs of the teller or the narrator. I'm just curious, kind of in your context, in like a academic researching context, what is kind of how does that play out practically? Oh, wow. I mean, I, I think it depends on, on the discipline, but in oral history, it can mean something like um, after I conduct an interview, I give a copy of the interview back to the person who told me the story and I let them make as many changes as they want mm. and revise it, um, giving them complete control over how it's disseminated. Um, and I think there are lots of really interesting ethical questions about doing interviews with people who have experienced profound trauma, which I think both you and I, uh, Jake, I think understand the complexity of with working with refugee populations. But I, I have also found that for a lot of the people I've interviewed, a lot of the refugees I've interviewed, it is a very empowering thing for them to share their story and to preserve it for future generations, which is a important priority for a lot of people. They, they wouldn't necessarily want to participate in an interview unless they knew that it would be in an institution where three generations from now, people would be able to have access to the interview and, and understand their experiences. So I think that's um, really compelling. And I think it's just sort of remembering that people might enter into an interview with a set of goals that you might not necessarily imagine immediately. Melissa, that makes me think of the project where a lot of Holocaust survivors were recorded um, just to tell their own stories in their own words as they were aging population. And um, just this idea that they needed to speak and tell their own stories and not through anyone. So, we can learn from that, you know, generations upon generations upon generations can look back on these recordings. Um, and I just think that's so, that's so important, you know, like you don't even see the person. It's just the person being interviewed. There's no journalist, there's no researcher or scholar. It's just that person. Um, and I think that goes back, Lindsay, to, um, what you were talking about too, like pass the mic, right? <laughs> like why, why do we always feel like we have to hold the pen or, the, the microphone. That's it's good stuff to think about. Yeah, that, that project you just described reminds me of this really cool project that was done in Minnesota where different generations of Hmong refugee women interviewed each mm. other. Mm. So it was mothers interviewing their grandmothers or children, and there were no outsiders involved that. in the project other than people who were serving as a repository. I think they're at the Minnesota Historical Society. But the institution serves as a repository for these interviews that are now being available to the next generation. And it was all driven by the vision of the Hmong refugee women, which is so awesome. cool. Yeah. So I was um, doing some some reading and I am an adoptive mom. So I always like to pay attention to the narratives of adult adoptees. And um, a woman who is an author was talking a lot about giving power to the subject and how adoptees should be the subject, not the ob object of stories. And I was thinking about this 
this episode that and this conversation we were going to have. And I wanted to ask you guys, how do we do that in our storytelling? How do we avoid objectifying somebody, but giving power to the subjects? That's the million dollar question, <laughs> isn't it? How do we? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the idea, I mean, on a, a practical level, um, what you said about control, you know, kind of giving, even in, just as you're doing an interview, um, making sure that that person understands that they have control, you know, so kind of entering in um, gently <laughs> and giving them permission to steer whichever way they want to steer, you know, even if like, um, and I feel like I was just dipping my toes in with this project and just starting to learn this. But um, as I was talking to folks when I was in Turkey and then also um, through my current job, I do some kind of um, interviewing people and um, storytelling, so to speak, just for like the online content that our, um, that our office has. So um but you always kind of go in with your with your questions, right? And we tend to always kind of want to know um, the the hardest parts, like for whatever reason, that's just what people are curious about and what they want to know and what they want to hear. But um, that's not a good way, right? You can't go in hard with those questions. Um, so I think, yeah, I go back to that idea of control, and that was something that. I started at least to learn along the way, um, kind of allowing, yeah, allowing the the subject to to guide and to shape things. Um, I don't know if that gets back to your question, Kayla, but that's just the first thing that that I thought yeah. of when you were saying that. Yeah, I agree, and I think along with giving up control and willing to be able to give up control is. Uh, approaching this whole project with a spirit of humility and assuming that you don't know anything is I think an important part, a starting point. Um, there have been so many times when I assume that I can explain a past event uh, and then I go in and actually talk to people and realize, oh, um, I wasn't entirely wrong, but my narrative that I had before going into the interview was not entirely complete mm. either. Um, so I think that there are lots of times when I would do my interviews with refugee for refugees, for example, that I realized, oh, um, they were just approaching the world with different questions and different assumptions that were not even on my horizon. And what I really needed to do was spend some time not even asking questions, just beginning with something very open-ended and allowing them to structure their own narrative because even by asking certain guided questions or targeted questions, I was already structuring the narrative in a way that foreclosed potential for me to have a deeper understanding of what was going on. Um, mm -hmm. So being like open, really open to different ways of seeing the world. And that is such a cliche, but it, <laughs> I think it's actually really yeah, hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
So my background is in journalism. So, you know, there's kind of this approach, Jake, like what you were saying, like you can't ask the big questions right away. But in journalism, you know, it's like I'm sitting down with this person. I have an hour. I have to hit all of these points. I already have an angle of what this narrative is going to be. Um, and there's there's a pressure there, right? And Melissa, like you were saying, you always hand your content back to the person that you um, are recording or interviewing. And there are a lot of newsrooms that that is not what you do. Like you could call, uh, you could call someone and say, Hey, just wanted to fact check a few things or wanted to go over something, but you keep that, that piece close to your chest. Right. So I am not, you know, working, I'm in that setting anymore, but it's really interesting that, you know, we have, we have a researcher academic and, and, you know, Jake who has kind of been more of an advocate and Lindsay in ministry. So just these different perspectives I find really fascinating. And now I, you know, I do some freelance writing and then I'm working on a communication side with a nonprofit. Um, but I just finished a feature, um, that I am, you know, was trying my best to let the person I was interviewing tell his story in his own story, in his immigration story, in his own story. And there were certain times where I'd be like, well, I would have said, I think you might sound better if you said it like this, or you know what I mean? But I had to step back and say, I have to let him in his own words, say what he wants to say. And we're friends. And so I, I, I shared the feature with him and it felt like this very vulnerable thing for me as a writer to do because normally I just pass it on to the editor but I was like I want to get this right I want it to be what he approves and what he wants to say um, and so it's been an interesting journey um, as kind of through the lens of a journalist so thanks for letting me process that out loud <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found, I'm curious for your thoughts about this, but something that I bumped into, and I'm sure, Melissa, you have bumped into it a lot more times than I have, but there is, um, and we've all kind of referenced it in the last couple minutes of our conversation here, but there is, uh, yeah, people know the people know already the set of questions that you have, at least when you approach them in the context that I was, right? So like, I'm in Turkey, I'm kind of a random American guy with a microphone, right? And I, I come up to you and want to ask you questions about being a refugee experience. You already have in your head mm. what you think I want to hear, right? <laughs> so, and, um, and in addition, especially for people who are on that side of the experience, who are maybe waiting, you know, um, to try to access resettlement or in some kind of interview, they've already gone through, you know, um, maybe several interviews at that point, And they've already set this narrative that they've told people who are interviewing mm -hmm. them um, in an interview where there's a lot at stake. Right. So they kind of have that, that narrative already stuck there. So part of it is trying to ask questions in a way that allows me to see that person outside of their, refugee identity and allows my listeners or readers, whoever is going to listen to see them in a different way and allows them to see themselves outside of that. Right. Because the, the minute that you cross a border um, under duress, 
you know, that's not the defining factor of your life. That's not, I mean, you had a whole life and a whole set of memories before that, and you're going to have a whole lot more after that, right? But those kind of crisis moments tend to be where we go immediately. And so, so yeah, people would kind of default directly to those things. And um, I would try to back up and say, well, you know, tell me something else, not about that, just to try to get things maybe moving in a different direction. Um, so I'm curious, yeah, for, for you, Melissa, if you also encounter that in your interviews and if, you know, how you kind of work around it in terms of what you were saying about allowing people to put their narrative t- together in their own way. Yeah, I think that's really hard. I guess I always return to this fundamental principle that for me, conducting a really wonderful oral history interview requires trust and relationship building. And in order to achieve that, you have to have time. So I think we've already addressed the fact that it's hard to do if you have half an hour or an hour. Um, And we all know that not everyone opens up and is willing to tell um, deep stories about suffering, for example, within 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, I, I think the context of a trusting relationship is really critical. Um, and I also think it's worth pointing out that the context of an interview um, and the particular participants in the interview and their social position matters mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and I think for me, going in and interviewing um, elderly Asian American women as uh, a young Asian American woman is probably a really different experience mm-hmm. than, say, um, those same women being interviewed by someone the same age, but um, young and male and white. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think being aware of all of the different ways that um, there can be affinity and trust, but also suspicion and fear um, and imbalances of power is important. Um, But I also feel like we should remember that when people share their stories, that is itself an act of Mm -hmm. generosity you know, it's, it's trying sometimes, especially for people who have gone through a lot of hardship to revisit those experiences through the act of storytelling. And so I think one of the keys to having a trusting relationship between people in an oral history interview context is um, a sense of humility and also gratitude. Like, I just feel grateful whenever anyone's willing to Mm -hmm. talk to me. It's just such a gift. And I think if we can communicate that, they'll be more willing to um, be open and honest and for it to be a, a really meaningful conversation. Yeah, I love that you pulled that relationship piece into it. Um, I was thinking earlier when, when you all were talking about sort of the million dollar question of subject versus object. I mean, my... Um, my environment and storytelling now I don't want to use that word anymore, but um, (laughs) it's very different. Right. And so I moved into a neighborhood and with the desire to live incarnationally. um, But I was, so this is a different take on, on kind of what you all are saying from. Yeah. So we moved into our neighborhood wanting to live incarnationally, which means like, we're going to do life with people. Right. And so we're going to be in a relationship with them and they're going to be our friends. They're not going to be our projects. And that initially, um, I was 
um, probably directly told, but also indirectly like received this guidance from others who had gone before me, like not to post pictures of my neighbors on line, right? Like whether it's blog or Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And initially that made a lot of sense. Like, well, no, of course I wouldn't do that. But the longer I was here and the more these people became my friends, it started to feel very odd that I wouldn't include them in my, you know, on online life because I post pictures of other friends. And so if these people are really my friends and not my projects, like why would that be different? (laughs) And so I remember the first time one of my neighbors, who is also my friend, wanted to take like a selfie of the two of us together at my house and post it on her Instagram. And I was like, this, this is a friendship. This isn't a she's not my project. She's my friend. And so if she's comfortable doing this, then why do I not feel comfortable too? And it was, you know, kind of like we've talked about like the power dynamic. And of course, I mean, my neighbors are all, you know, they're, they're, they're born in the States. They're not refugees. They haven't resettled. So there's like a different dynamic there in terms of um, understanding of what happens when that image goes onto the internet. And there's a lot of different dynamics, but I just wanted to share that experience from my perspective, because I think it was a real like aha moment for me of like, wait, I said that I was going to live here and be in relationship with people. And if I'm genuinely friends with them, why would I not be doing this? Which a lot of, um, I think just good practice would say like, well, no, don't post pictures of people, you know, and there's all these like without their permission or without this or without that. But in my context, it was actually like kind of separating me relationally from people, if that makes sense. It was like a way for you to let them make you part Mm -hmm. of their story. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, It's a reminder also that people might have expectations about what a good relationship looks Mm -hmm. like that are different. Yeah, definitely. Like, what do you mean by that? You know, from my perspective, it would seem to be the most respectful thing to do what what was done at the beginning, which is not to post a lot of pictures online without permission and so on. But people might have a different assumption about what it means to show friendship and respect. Mm. And so it might be the case that, you know, that they want to be included in your online life. But again, the the meaning of what it means to show respect for another person is, and what the practices are showing respect for another person is not universal. Right. And not obvious. Right. Yeah. So that's an assumption that could have been made either way, either way, Maybe. really. Yeah. <laughs> another, another example of that um, might be something that I, kind of experienced along the way is um, as I interviewed folks, I offered, you know, that I could either use their real name or their first name um, or use a different name, you know, just out of concern for privacy and anonymity and stuff like that. And generally, and to me, that was a way to show respect, right? But um more than often the way that people responded was kind of like, well, no, my name is my name and that's who I am. Why would I want to change that? I don't have anything to hide. You know, mm-hmm. so it was kind of a, 
I sensed that that difference was going on and it kind of clued me into, yeah, that I was mm-hmm. thinking different than they were and there wasn't necessarily, yeah. Um, so also connected to that though, is sometimes people didn't understand um, the broader repercussions of having their story shared with their name. So there was that element right. of it too. Um, but yeah, just that idea for me, it was like respectful to kind of offer that anonymity, but for them it was like, seemed mm-hmm. kind of foreign or strange so different value systems operating yeah that's a good example so when we were at the upside down gathering micah bornet who is um a poet and an artist he talked about creativity in justice work and he said that a lot of times when we are creating in the justice sphere we show ourselves as the victim or as the hero but rarely as the perpetrator and I just would love to hear your thoughts on why you think that happens. You know, I was reading um, in preparation for this interview today, this uh, really great guide to doing oral history by Donald Ritchie. Um, and he was talking about the history of people telling the past and, and using oral history to tell of the past. And, and he said, people like to tell stories Um, and especially when the stories are cute and appealing, but they really have a hard time dealing with the dark parts Mm -hmm. of history, uh, and maybe their complicity Mm -hmm. in the dark parts of history. Um, so we see this in all sorts of ways that we tell of the past. Everyone wants to highlight all the ways in which their ancestors were involved positively in the civil rights movement or, uh, involved in the Underground Railroad, but no one really wants to bring to light the fact that their ancestors might have owned slaves mm-hmm. or, um, you know, been part of these citizens' councils that oppose civil rights. And so, yeah, I, I think that that is the nature of humanity, um, but it certainly plays a huge role in the stories that we tell about our past and also our present. So because this has been on the forefront of my mind lately, again, just from like the missions perspective, um, perpetrators don't raise a lot of money. <laughs> so in in order to, I mean, just that's right. So like in order to raise support, you can't be the victim. You can't be the perpetrator. You have to be the hero. Um and yeah, I've been spending a lot, a lot of time thinking about this lately as we think about what's next for our family and what that will look like. But I just think that's one of the really unfortunate things about the American church and the way that missions have been done. Do you feel like um, people have in powerful ways also repented of wrongs that they have committed in the past? I mean, I, I do think I've seen some powerful examples of that um just today there was that article about we are wrong did you did anyone read about read that Mm. piece by the southern baptist um preacher but anyway the whole the whole point of this was um you know the importance of people in the church saying that they have done bad things and they were wrong about a variety of um issues related to power and race and, and gender and I wonder if this is ushering in a greater willingness to admit to being a perpetrator. I mean, 
no one <laughs> in power wants to admit right. that, but I would Yeah, <laughs> I do think, I, I mean, I can think certainly of, um, like you're saying, like individuals or organizations that have started down that route of, oh, there was an Ivy League school a few years ago who paid well started some reparations for the slaves who built their buildings so i think we are starting to see some of that um but there's just centuries of systems that will have to be dismantled um you know to right. move to move forward right. that's important work like we have to we have to learn from the past and and repent and lament and all of that before we can move forward. And I will say too, like personally, I've, I, I, I mean, I'm human, so I'm fallible and often think of myself as the hero, but I try to be really intentional to, to quickly remind myself that I'm not right. And so to share stories um, with our supporters personally, where um, I'm really clear about the things that I'm learning from my neighbors and the way that God is working in me because of my relationships with them um, and that it is reciprocal and there's relationship and all those things. And so like just from a personal standpoint, like our supporters, when I have shared difficult things or stories where I'm not the hero, have really been accepting of that. So I think also there is a paradigm shift either occurring or maybe it isn't really as bad as, as I thought it was in terms of what people are willing to, um, to support and put their money behind in the sense of like, you know, we think about return on investment and like, how long are you going to invest in this person before you move on? And, and those kind of things. And I think some of those are ideas, at least in my head that aren't actually true of the people who I can only speak personally, you know, are supporting my family. You know, the the topic of sharing stories where one is not the hero, um, but one is the perpetrator, makes me think that that itself is a, a powerful type of story that people can tell. You know, they're a story of their own conversion, mm-hmm. basically. And um, if you look back to... The 1940s, um, the, there were some really interesting videos posted online by the um, Lutheran Archive of these historic um, videos that were created, or films, I should say, because they didn't really have videos of films, created to promote support for refugees. And the narratives were always, or often, um, here is this person who was um, comfortable, a white American middle-class person living in the United States and oblivious to the needs of refugees. And they were suspicious of refugees. And then they realized that refugees are actually not going to harm them or take away their jobs or what have you. And they had a a conversion moment and they Mm -hmm. repented. And this is a really powerful type of story that organizations have used to encourage the broader church to reconsider their fear of refugees. And this type of story was told over and over again in the seventies when Vietnam, um, the Vietnamese refugees came to the U S and I imagine you can probably find those types of stories Mm -hmm. in the 21st century. So those repentance stories, I think are so powerful that we can tell of Mm -hmm. our own lives 
that can change yeah. the conversation. And Lindsay, you have mentioned to me before ethicalstorytelling.com, and that's a community of nonprofit practitioners and storytellers that are trying to kind of flip the script and integrate like a new standard of storytelling, um, you know, that there is a way that people will want to donate and support things that comes from an empowerment sort of way and not, um, I, we are the heroes kind of way. So it's not, it's not the only way, <laughs> you know? Right, right. No, no. So a lot of our listeners might be listening saying, well, I don't have a podcast or I'm not, you know, studying oral history. I'm, I'm not a missionary, but we all tell stories and we all connect through the power of human relationship and human interaction and story. Like I, I, I just, as I get older, I just believe that even and more every, every person I hear, every story I hear, every book I read, every, you know, article I see, I believe that the world can really change through story. And that starts with our own hearts um, and our own stories. And so for our listeners here who might not be doing this in any sort of professional way, might not have a platform, um, why does this matter? Like, why, why have this conversation? Why are these things that we need to think about no matter who we are? Melissa mentioned listening, I think, earlier on in the first part of our conversation. And I think in some ways, if you don't have some project that you're working on, um, that's when listening can be the truest and the most meaningful. There are um, some refugee background folks that I've developed relationships with, other people who live in Chicago. Um, and for me, the challenge of just being friends with them and having a relationship with them and listening to them um, without thinking about fitting that into some project. Um, like that's really challenging for me and it's really good for me. And I think it uh, teaches me always the, the value of that kind of listening. So in some ways, if you don't have a um, if you don't have a platform that's kind of a plus, it simplifies mm -hmm. things um, and allows you and challenges you to just listen to people's stories and understand them and do it in a way um, that has that trust and relationship and time that we talked about, you know, that are hard to work into like some kind of project sometimes. Um, yeah, if you don't have that, you... You have the time to build that trust and that relationship. And even if you hear that person share something that you're never going to share with anybody else, um, there's meaning in that. If I think about the original question, I, it seems to boil down to why do stories matter? And, and I think they matter because they're such a powerful way for people to change, to change themselves through the act of listening to other people and being in their presence even. Um, but it also is a chance for us to change minds and change the world around us. Um, so I, I think that we all actually do have a platform. I think most of us or a lot of us are on some sort of social media. Um, 
I made it a goal in 2019 to <laughs> overcome my fear of Twitter. So <laughs> that's my, <laughs> I only use one form of social media, but maybe I will use two by the year and uh, maybe, um, but you know, I, I, from, from my perspective, I have found that um, people share stories through social media or through person to person encounters that have really changed how I see the world. And I know that um, also the stories I've shared about my own life, um, not just about the work I do and, and the people I've written about and studied, but my own experience um, moving through the world as an Asian American female, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think has had an impact on um, how mm-hmm. my friends see the world. Um, I, and I always give the example of how uh, a few years ago I had this really horrible racist encounter when I was walking down the street. And I, I don't usually expect to experience these things um, walking down the street in a city as diverse as New York, but it was a pretty awful experience. And I wrote a pretty heartfelt confessional Facebook post about what that was like. And I, and I got a private message from a friend not long after saying, you know, Melissa, you're, you're pretty cheerful and you're upbeat and you, you seem to, you know, do pretty well in life. And I just had no idea that these things ever happened mm-hmm. to you. And, and he just hadn't experienced, um, being the target of a racial epithet walking down, um, mm-hmm. the street. And it was just such a small thing. I mean, it's actually a pretty, pretty large thing, but it, a story that I could tell that helped him understand the pervasiveness of racism in America and, and the fact that it affected people he knew. Um, so I tried to make it a regular practice to share small stories and big stories through a variety of media um, because I think it's powerful. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about narratives lately um and not so much the narratives that we tell but more the narratives that we sort of absorb so we're talking about a lot about interviews and um listening to people's stories but we're absorbing story or narrative all the time right like whether it's an instagram post or a billboard Mm -hmm. we're there's these messages that we're receiving. And so I think um, there's also a responsibility that we have, whether, you know, someone might view themselves as a storyteller or not um, to uh, think really um, critically about the narratives that we're absorbing and what those narratives say about other humans um, and we have a responsibility then to push back against narratives that are counter to the way of Jesus and say things about people that are not true. Um, so I think there's also that um, importance when we talk about story is are we receiving, are we hearing, are, are other people in our presence telling stories about a certain group of people or about a person that are actually not true and what is our responsibility in those situations yeah yeah there's the responsibility to push back against false stories about people false stories Mm -hmm. that are harmful about people especially um and there's just the general responsibility to constantly 
question um, the narratives that, as you point out, we're constantly yes. absorbing and trying to understand what work yes. those stories do and what power structures those stories serve to uphold. Yes, absolutely. That is what I spend a lot of time thinking about. And, how, you know, what is my place in all of that? And how do I do that? It's just one person, you know? Well, there is, I mean, yeah. we have, we say this all the time on Upside Down Podcasts, but we have got like the tip of the iceberg on this thing. <laughs> and it has almost been an hour. So I want to give Jake and Melissa a chance to just share anything else as we're kind of closing up shop for this episode, at least. So we'll just have to do round two again. But uh, any parting words for our listeners or just reflections as we think about the power of story? Jake, do you want to go first? Yeah. Yes, I agree. I was sitting here listening and also thinking of all sorts of other questions that could lead to much longer <laughs> conversations. So I do feel like we're scratching the surface. Um, and I would welcome a round two if you guys want to do it. But I was really glad um, just in this conversation, the attention that we gave, um, it just kind of naturally came up, I think, about uh, trust and time and relationship. Um, I guess in the work that I've done so far, those are probably some of the things I've thought the most about and some of maybe the biggest challenges, you know, if you... Um, at least for me, when I do have some kind of project in which I'm trying to share um, other people's voices, uh, those things are key, you know, and I found myself um, continuing to try to find ways to build those into the process somehow, even though it's hard. So I would say for, for listeners who do feel like they're those kind of bridge people, you know, and they want to share the experiences of others um, through some medium, like figure out how to involve those things in there because I think they're big. And um, the other thing to share in closing, I guess, is just uh, I'm getting better at doing these <laughs> obligatory plugs for my own project. But, yes. Um, for listeners, I would, would love for you guys to listen to Beyond Sound Bites. You can find that podcast at Beyond, Beyond Sound Bites Podcast. Org. And um, yeah, it is, it's a project that has been a labor of love. So of course I care a lot about it, but I also am just, um, I'm proud for, of how the personhood of some of the people who I spoke with comes through in those episodes. And um, when I ask people to listen, it's not just my project, but it's really asking mm -hmm. people to listen to those people and to their voices. So that makes it a little bit easier for me to yeah. uh, advertise for myself. So, so I, I'm going to conclude, I think, by making a public confession of <laughs> I am not great at listening. I'm more of a talker. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is something that I really struggle with in my own life, as anyone who knows me knows well. Um, but I think there's something really sacred about being with another person and hearing their story. And a number of people have used religious language to describe the experience of just being with another person, being in their presence, 
not saying anything and just receiving the gift that is hearing mm. their story. Um, and this is across religious traditions. I, in preparation for the conversation today, I was reading about Buddhists and the spiritual significance of being present and listening um, uh, in among Buddhists uh, doing oral history projects. And in addition, I also read this terrific article about um, theological reflections mm. on the grace and listening to another's story. Um, so looking at it from a Christian mm-hmm. perspective, I guess we live in a world where there's so much conversation and there's so much noise and it is such a gift to listen to another person and to mm-hmm. just be with each other. Um, and and I, I think it's sacred. I really do. Um, so I'm involved in this refugee resettlement oral history project at Princeton through the Office of Religious Life. And it just got started. It's a a three-year project. And that's the thing I always emphasize, especially because so many of the people um, who are involved in the project are people of faith, who are interviewing other people of faith, just emphasizing that across religious traditions, there is um, something really special and holy about hearing stories Mm -hmm. and sharing stories. That's really good. I will add that we discussed several different folks to include in this conversation Um, because what Kayla and I acknowledged in our preparation is the four of us would probably consider ourselves storytellers, right? So we often are the ones telling the story and maybe we're also the ones in places of power or platform. And so we we thought, well, that's kind of weird. Like we're going to sit around and talk about ethical storytelling, but we're the ones telling the stories. Is there someone we could include in the conversation who has had their story told before um, who could guide us, right? Like we want to listen to them. And, and so we, we talked about several people reached out to a few and those didn't work out. And I think that it's an important reminder that as Melissa has said multiple times, when we receive someone's story, that's a gift. It's not something they owe us. And so there's not uh, someone sitting at this table guiding us from that point of view because for different reasons um, that they, they that wasn't available to us. And so I think we, as the people who might be in positions of power, need to remember that we're not owed people's stories. We don't have the right to demand people's stories, um, that it's really a gift that we receive. And so I just wanted to, as we kind of wrap up, that thought entered my mind as something I wanted to say, like there's not someone at the table and we, we recognize that, but there's also like reasoning behind that. And that might be a reason for us as storytellers to like have to accept that someone doesn't want to share their story with us or they have shared so much that they, you know, they're out of energy to do that again or whatever the case may be in, in individual circumstances. Yeah. Well, Jake and Melissa um, and Lindsay, I'll throw you on the list too, but <laughs> thank you for uh, just talking with us. You know, I, Lindsay and I have been talking a lot about how we see this podcast, not, we don't come to the table as experts on every topic that we're talking about, but we just want to model the conversation so our listeners can go out and have something to talk about with their neighbor or with their friend or with somebody in their family, um, that this would just be kind of a jumping off point. 
and Jake and Melissa, you've given us so much to think about and we are so um, appreciative for your wisdom and for your heart and for your time and we're just really grateful. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. Thank you. It was an honor. Well, for our listeners, you can find us at UpsideDownPodcast.com. We're Upside Down Podcast on Instagram. That's where you can find our show notes. And until next time, I'm Keela Craig. Thanks for listening.